Two active manhunts for two dangerous men in two major metropolitan areas of the United States. The lead starts right now. New details just in on the search for Danilo Cavalcante, the killer who scaled the walls of a Pennsylvania prison to escape. He's wanted internationally. The growing questions about the prison tower guard on duty. How did he not see the man slip away? And in the nation's capital, another suspected killer wanted for breaking loose from a prestigious D.C. hospital. Plus, Donald Trump's major move today, trying to get a prosecution against him, moved to what he thinks will prove friendlier terrain. Will this play work? And President Biden taking off this hour for the G20 in India, major international trip. He's leaving major troubles behind at home. A new CNN poll showing Americans dwindling confidence in Mr. Biden. And a breakout Republican more than capable of beating Biden. And it is not Donald Trump. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we're going to start in our law and justice lead today in two manhunts that are baffling law enforcement and leaving communities on edge with many, many questions. In the suburbs west of Philly, Pennsylvania State Police have just given an update on the search for Danilo Cavalcante, who escaped from a prison in Westchester one week ago. Police shared new details of reports, yet again, yet another sighting of Cavalcante just this morning. And in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., it is day two of the search for an accused killer who escaped police custody while at a hospital. Police say that Christopher Haynes escaped during a change of his handcuffs, assaulting an officer in the process. But first, let's go to Chester County outside Philadelphia, where just moments ago police gave an update on the frantic search to find this internationally wanted criminal who has been on the run for eight days. Danilo Cavalcante, seen here on the left side of your screen, literally crab walking his way out of prison. You see him there about to scale the brick wall. There he goes, managing to get through layers of razor wire right after that. The tower guard, who failed to see that, is now on administrative leave, we're told. A reminder, this escaped killer was in prison for stabbing his former girlfriend to death in 2021, stabbing her 38 times, all in front of her two young children. Cavalcante also wanted in Brazil, his native country, for allegedly killing someone in 2017. CNN's Danny Freeman is live for us outside the Chester County prison, outside Philly. Danny, are police any closer to finding Cavalcante, do they think? Listen, Jake, police here in Chester County, they're still projecting strength. They're still saying that they believe they are getting closer to capturing Cavalcante. But the reality is, is that Danilo Cavalcante, that escaped inmate, continues to evade capture day after day for a week now since that video of him escaping the prison behind me. I do want to tell you some of the things we did learn today from that press conference that just wrapped up. First, police believe that's Pennsylvania State Police uh, who are running this operation. They still believe that Cavalcante is in the uh, perimeter that they have set up in recent days. The perimeter basically is to the southeast of where we are at the prison. It's now an 8 by, by 10 square mile radius. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons why they still believe that. First is because uh, police said there was a potential sighting earlier today just east of Longwood Gardens in this perimeter. And Jake, you know Longwood Gardens well. For those not familiar, it's a large botanical garden area. It's a popular tourist destination, uh, sprawling, a lot of wooden 
wooded areas, meadows, also creeks. And right next to there, that's where we actually happen to see uh, helicopters flying low after this reported sighting. Someone came up to police uh, and told them they saw someone running through uh, some of the wooded areas over there, but that is still not a confirmed sighting at this time. Law enforcement, of course, did not capture anyone. Um, but the main reason police actually still believe that he's inside that perimeter right now, Jake, is because they say they have no reports of him popping up outside of that perimeter. I want you to take a listen to what Lieutenant Colonel uh, George Bivens, though, had to say during this press conference about the challenges when it comes to the question of why aren't police basically going shoulder to shoulder uh, marching through some of these areas. It's not that simple. Take a listen. It's not just a perfect open piece of land that you can just uh, march through. You've got uh, businesses, residences, highways, uh, hills, valleys, uh, wooded areas that can't be pushed through. The number of people that it would take to contain that area and be able to walk shoulder to shoulder through that area and squeeze and, 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 and the amount of time that it would take, um, it's, it's just simply not realistic to do that. And Jake, Pennsylvania State Police say they are sparing no expense and no resource here. They have federal resources, state resources, local resources, horses. They're searching trees. They have boots on the ground, all, I should add, in this sweltering heat. Jake? Is the prison now taking uh, extra steps to make sure escapes like this don't happen again? Uh, listen, Jake, the acting warden of the prison was not present at this press conference today. So the last we've heard from him uh, was yesterday. They insist that they are taking precautions to make sure uh, an escape like this doesn't happen. But I'll remind you and viewers, an escape like this happened four months ago back in May. It was almost identical. Another inmate scaled up that wall, jumped off the roof. Uh, that prisoner was captured, though, uh, in a matter of five minutes. Police say because the tower guard was able to see him escaping at that time. This is that uh, escape back in May. Uh, but the acting warden said uh, yesterday that they were not prepared for that sort of human failure. That's their words. Uh, so they're looking to boost infrastructure and uh, really review their policies to make sure this or an, another escape like this can't happen again, Jake. Yeah, I'm no expert, but maybe that wall is uh, vulnerable. Uh, Danny Freeman, uh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. In the nation's capital, the hunt's on for a murder suspect who managed to slip through police custody. Yesterday afternoon, authorities say this man, 30-year-old Christopher Haynes, was arrested in connection with the murder of a 33-year-old man shot to death. Police say this is what happened when he was taken to George Washington University Hospital after complaining about a prior ankle injury. While the officer was changing out his handcuffs at the hospital, Mr. Haynes physically assaulted that officer and fled from the hospital. He got out of the room because one of the officers removed one of the handcuffs from the suspect. The suspect was not securely, from my understanding, secured, secured to the gurney. After assaulting the police officer, Haynes was last seen fleeing GW Hospital. He is described as having a prominent Washington Nationals W tattoo on the front of his neck, police are asking the public for any information that will lead to his arrest. Joining us now to discuss these manhunts, Michael Tabman, retired FBI special agent in charge, and Bryce Peterson, a research scientist who specializes in prison facilities and correctional safety. Uh, Michael, let me start with you. Police in Pennsylvania say there have been about eight sightings of Cavalcante. They've shifted their search perimeter. It's now eight to ten square miles. Yet they continue to struggle to find him. Is it fair to say that this has taken too long? Are there certain steps that you're concerned are not being taken? Well, Jake, I certainly did predict that it, it would have found him sooner than this. 
But that doesn't mean that the police are doing a bad job. Uh, there's a certain amount of luck that is involved in the equation. Uh, sometimes things just don't fall your way. I have like elements of heat that affect the camera. And now we learned, I think, on your network this morning that Cavalcanti has some survivalist skills in living amongst the trees and the brush. So there's a bit of an advantage there. What they need to do now is be secure in the fact that they have been within the perimeter based on these sightings and uh, credible sightings of that, because there have been a lot more reporting of sightings than these eight or ten. And they have to start tightening that perimeter and then putting the pressure on, meaning you know, keep the action up. When he hears the helicopters above, he hears dogs barking. We want to deprive him of sleep, of food, of water, of any kind of comfort. And we want to wear him down to the point that he wants to give up. So we have to keep the pressure on. And we also want to do it quickly, hoping he doesn't get any more resources, such as money or uh, most likely we don't want him to have a weapon. Bryce, the escaped killer in Pennsylvania, was able to break out even after more razor wire had been added in the same area where a different inmate had briefly escaped just a few months ago. And in this case, the tower guard failed to see him crab walk the law, the wall. And, and in D.C., the suspected killer there was able to get away because he was not handcuffed to a hospital gurney because they were swapping out the cuffs. Um, are these cases of negligence by law enforcement uh, or is this just what happens uh, every now and then because, you know, criminals going to criminal? Yeah, I don't want to speak on those cases specifically because I'm not involved in, you know, any sort of investigation or research in those areas. Um, but this is what happens. Um, we see this. Uh, it's not frequent, but when escapes do occur, it's often because there's either some sort of security lap, uh, some protocol wasn't followed something happens that it creates the opportunity for someone to escape. So it's not it's not completely uncommon. Um, I don't want to blame it on any particular individual in either of those agencies, just because I'm not familiar with uh, the, the details of their investigations yet. But this is not an uncommon thing in general. Michael, there have been several uh, sightings of Cavalcanti uh, over several days in and around Longwood Gardens. Why might he consider Longwood Gardens a, a safe place? Um, does he not believe that law enforcement knows he's been spotted there or... Uh, is there just a lot of cover uh, or is it just where he ended up? It's probably a combination of all three. He ended up there. And as we said, he might be very comfortable within the trees and the brush, thinking he could find cover physically uh, from law enforcement. And there's no indication that he has access to the media. So he doesn't hear on CNN that the police uh, may believe they have him contained within the perimeter. So he may believe now that he's staying safe because he's getting away with it for so long. And the more comfortable he gets, the more likely he is, to, he is to make a mistake that will lead to his arrest. Bryce, uh, the authorities have uh, shut down two school districts in Pennsylvania. Um, some of the schools are closed for a third day. We're not seeing the same response uh, in, in D.C. Is it right for schools and school districts uh, to close? I mean, my immediate response, and maybe I'm naive about this, is it's, it's not as though Cavalcanti has a weapon. It's not as though he has superhuman powers is is there a need to shut down school districts yeah i mean you see the response vary across jurisdictions i don't know if there, there there's no evidence to say one way or the other is best practice per se um but i know that they're taking every precaution necessary i can say though from the research that we've done that in general it is rare that people use violence once once they've escaped from custody um they're too busy you know, looking for food, looking for shelter, looking for places to hide and avoiding recapture to really engage in too much crime outside. Not to say it never happens, but it is a rare event when it does occur. And, and Michael, my, my general uh, reaction when I hear about somebody who is on the run is, 
I don't feel like, I mean, people obviously should lock their doors anyway, but I, I don't feel particularly vulnerable or think that anybody else should be particularly, feel particularly vulnerable. These people want to avoid detection and get the hell out of there in, in, in general. Th- these aren't necessarily people looking to take hostages or cause damage, right? Well, that's true, Jake. But in their desperation, we don't know how they'll react. So I know there's a reporting someone suspected that Cavalcanti had broken in their home and stole food and fl- fled. Well, that's good if he fled. But we might get another situation where he's shoplifting or trying to steal something else. And the person, maybe not knowing who he is, uh, is going to approach this guy. Uh, he's not a very imposing figure. He's going to look like somebody he can take down pretty easily. So if he panics like that and he feels he's going to be challenged, he may do something violent. So you're right. He doesn't want to bring attention to himself. But when back in the corner, we don't know how he's going to react. And given his violent history, we can only suspect that he would be violent in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. I just mean people should go on and live their lives, not live in fear. But be cautious uh, at the yeah, same time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, be cautious. And, and if you see him, either one of these uh, these criminals, uh, avoid and, and call authorities. Michael Tabman and, and Bryce Peterson, thanks to both of you and appreciate your sharing your expertise with us. We have some breaking news for you now. The jury has reached a verdict in the contempt of Congress trial of former Trump trade advisor Peter Navarro. Let's go straight to CNN's Evan Perez to bring us the news. Evan, what is the verdict? Well, he was found guilty, Jake, of both counts, two counts of uh, contempt of Congress. One, for failing to uh, provide uh, documents that were requested by the January 6th committee. Uh, and then the second uh, for uh, failing to show up to provide testimony. This was a request that uh, the, uh, the, the January 6th committee had uh, for a February 2022 subpoena. You remember the committee was investigating the January 6th, the events of January 6th, and Peter Navarro was somebody that they wanted to talk to. They also wanted to get access to some of his documents. If you remember, he has spoken about uh, this whole plan for them to contest the election, right? Well ahead of time, they knew that that this was what the plan was. And so that's something that that certainly Congress wanted to investigate. We also know that the special counsel, Jack Smith, has been interested in in getting access to some of that same information. And and what prosecutors laid out in this very, very brief uh, case, in this very brief trial, was that he essentially just ignored Congress uh, and their requests for both the documents and for uh, for testimony. Now, uh, part of the problem for Peter Navarro was uh, he was trying to claim that it's complicated because I was an advisor to the former president, so therefore there was uh, executive privilege. But prosecutors pointed out that Donald Trump never actually asserted right. executive privilege in in his case. And so as a result of that, uh, there was not much of a defense that Peter Navarro could uh, prove provide as part of this uh, as part of this case. And so uh, we know, obviously, this is the second former uh, aide of the former president to be uh, brought up on these charges. Right. The first was Steve Bannon, Steve right? Bannon. He was, he was uh, convicted last year on two contempt counts. Right. Exactly. Same. The same counts. Same same counts, uh, failing to provide the documents and failing to to provide testimony. And in his case, you know, he got a four months uh, uh, sentence as part of that. That is still under appeal. He appealed it. And, and, right. where, and what's the status of that? Where is that case? That is still a, a pending uh, appeal at this point. Is there so, a court date or what? Uh, I, to be honest, I don't I don't know what the yeah, latest okay. is on it. But but, but the, you know, you, you get the picture of where what Peter Navarro is up against, especially once you take into account the fact that the former president never actually asserted 
uh, uh, executive privilege as, as part of why he said he was not turning in these documents and not showing up to provide testimony. Right. Now, the difference, obviously, there was a difference between Navarro and Bannon is that Navarro at least worked in the White House. Bannon did not. Uh, so right. Navarro had a slightly stronger argument uh, because than, than Bannon did because he at least worked in the White House. But the jury wasn't buying it for either of them, I guess. Right. The jury doesn't buy it. And also, you know, you, certainly I think Republicans and, and conservative legal scholars would say that a president is entitled to have advice even from someone who is not inside the White House. Mm-hmm. So that is something that Steve Bannon also tried to claim as part of his uh, as part of his case. But look, I mean, this jury started deliberations around 11 a.m. or so today, and they appear to have uh, reached a verdict very, very quickly. I should note that uh, uh, right now our team in, in, in court says that uh, the, the legal team for Peter Navarro has said that he plans to move for or he's seeking a mistrial uh, based on some various very uh, uh, various things that happened in court uh, during this during this case. So we don't know what that's about. We're just trying to pay attention a little bit to see what exactly the judge does about that. But obviously, this is going to be appealed. Uh, Peter Navarro is probably going to spend some time uh, trying to fight this uh, before this is all over. All right, Evan Petto, stick around. I want to uh, also bring in CNN special correspondent. Uh, Jamie Gangel. So, Jamie, this is now the second uh, contempt of Congress conviction. First, uh, Steve Bannon, uh, now uh, Peter Navarro. All of the president's men keep getting indicted and now convicted. Simple message. You are not above the law. This was a very straightforward case, as, as Evan just said. He was asked to provide testimony. He was asked to uh, provide these documents. He refused to do it. He claimed executive privilege, but Trump, as as the judge ruled, uh, you know, they never came forward with that evidence. But bottom line, Jake, I think what's going to be interesting is down the road how this may fit in to the other January 6th cases. This was about not giving testimony and documents to the committee for their hearings, but there is information, there there are documents, there's testimony, there are email that may be helpful in these other cases. Uh, you uh, have been known to talk to some of the members of the January 6th House <laughs> Select Committee, uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, and I know one of the former members, uh, Adam Kinzinger, uh, maybe maybe uh, t- a note to control room if you haven't started calling Adam Kinzinger. Right. Let's try to get him on to get his reaction. Uh, I'm one. You know they were very frustrated. They were trying to get uh, to the bottom of what happened on January 6. And one of their uh, often publicly stated frustrations was that there were individuals who had answers, who worked for the American people, who refused to abide by the separation of powers uh, agreement as enumerated. Uh, in in the Constitution um, and answer questions uh, like Steve Bannon, uh, like Peter Navarro. And I'm wondering how those individuals, whether Liz Cheney or Benny Thompson or any of the other members of the January 6th committee, uh, you might imagine how they how they feel today. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you who I've already texted. <laughs> I'm waiting for the responses. But I, I think it is fair to say, considering, you know, exactly what you just said and and the frustration, the discussions, Today is a win for the January 6th committee, 
And, you know, even though it no longer exists, it, it made the point that you do have to show up. You, you do have to uh, provide testimony. And, and then again, the question is going to be, you know, this is delayed. It's, it's taken a long time. But my understanding is from sources close to Jack Smith, he is not going uh, to give up. And, and if there is information here that is relevant, whether it, it is to former President Trump or his unindicted six co-conspirators, he is going to follow that where it leads. Very interesting, uh, Jamie Gangel. Uh, and and uh, big picture, Evan Pettis, um, when it comes to the investigation into what happened on January 6th and why it happened, we still there's still a lot we do not know. Uh, right. Even after the January 6th, committee investigation, even after Jack Smith's investigation, even after District Attorney Fonnie Willis's investigation, even after the Michigan law enforcement investigation into the, the fake electors there, there's still a lot we don't know because individuals like Peter Navarro and Steve Bannon and others uh, have refused to answer questions. Right. And look, I mean, this is a, a strategy that the former president used very successfully previously. And so uh, people around him also did the same thing, right? They figured that if they just played the waiting game, eventually prosecutors go away, eventually these committees go away, they have to move on, right? And you can you can run out the clock, except that in, this, in the case of the special counsel, Jack Smith, I mean, he has shown that that is not going to necessarily work. And so what we saw today, by the way, we saw the grand jury show up again for the first time in about a month. And we know that this is a grand jury that's been looking into the January 6th uh, related issues, including, of course, the efforts to overturn the election, Jake. And so we saw the grand jury today. We saw prosecutors working for Jack Smith there today. This is a grand jury that has an expiration date uh, next week, as a matter of fact. And so the question remains, are there no more charges in the offing? We know, obviously, there are a number of uh, unnamed co-conspirators that were in that indictment against the former president uh, in the Jack Smith case. Are those people facing perhaps uh, some some outcomes uh, from this grand jury in the coming week. That's one of the big questions that hangs over all of this. And of course, some of the answers that you're asking, uh, you're right. There's still a lot of those answers are, that are pending. Yeah. And, and especially when it comes to direct links or communications between anybody in Trump world and the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers who have been convicted and sentenced to accumulatively maybe more than 100 years or whatever in prison right. uh, among the Oath Keepers and, and the Proud Boys. I should note that U.S. District uh, Judge uh, Mehta, uh, who's the judge in this case, is set sentencing for January 12th. Uh, and each count of contempt of Congress carries a minimum of 30 days and a maximum of one year in jail, as well as a fine of up to $100,000. We'll see what happens there. Let's, let's bring up some uh, other things that happened that I want to ask you about. Uh, another uh, major development uh, in the legal uh, world today, lawyers for uh, Donald Trump have formally notified the judge in the Georgia election case uh, that they may want to move the case from Georgia to federal court. What are the advantages of moving it from Georgia to federal court? They made that motion in court in Georgia today. Right. And so the first the first advantage is I think they want to get perhaps a better jury pool or at least what they think might be a better jury pool. Certainly, you know, one that not, doesn't just include Fulton County, but includes some of the, the, the suburbs of, of it's not it's not much more red than Fulton County, but 
you know, they could get a, a, perhaps a better jury pool, at least in their opinion. The, the biggest advantage, though, Jake, is that what this does is it brings the, the possibility that they can then go for a second uh, effort, which is to try to get this case dismissed on the idea that the former president is immune because he was acting as a federal officer. So what will happen if a judge allows this to happen, right, if Donald Trump gets to move his case out of state court, is will, they'll have to say that the judge will have to find that what the former president was doing was he was acting in his capacity uh, as a federal official. And so that's why the case deserves to be heard in federal court, not in state court, right? Uh, but then the second punch that they will try to, to do with, is to try to basically declare that he should be immune and should not, that this case should go away. And so that's, uh, that's where this uh, advantage grows, certainly for the former president. We don't know what uh, will happen. Certainly right now, Mark Meadows is trying to do the same thing with his case. Former White House chief of staff. Right, yeah. his former, former and, and co-defendant. And we know a few others that are also making the same, Jeffrey Clark is making the same push. So there is a lot of uh, legal fighting that's going to happen in the coming weeks and months to try to pursue this very question. Now, we, we, you know, we don't yet have the former president's request. He's just putting it forward to the judge saying that this is where we were headed. Uh, I want to bring in uh, former Republican Congressman uh, Adam Kinzinger, who is uh, one of the former members of the Select House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Uh, Congressman Kinzinger, uh, Peter Navarro, former Trump advisor, uh, whom you tried to get to testify before the committee for your investigation, who refused to turn over documents, uh, who refused uh, to testify, was found guilty today, just minutes ago, on both counts counts of contempt of Congress. Uh, Sentencing will be in January. Uh, I'm wondering what your reaction is. Well, hey, Jake, it's great. I mean, you know, it's it's sad that we have to get to this. I mean, the the role of the people's house uh, is to do things like investigations, and especially on something as important as January 6th, as serious as January 6th. And we had people, we had many people, uh, this is obviously one of them, that simply refused to acknowledge that, that simply tried to hide. You know, we, we weren't asking them to come in and embarrass themselves or whatever. We were just asking for information, asking what they knew, and they decided to turn against Congress. I have uh, no sympathy for Mr. Navarro right now. I mean, we, we tried over and over to set up, you know, different times, different meetings, different opportunities and he refused. And uh, so this is justice. We'll see what he ends up getting. But uh, I think it's certainly vindicating for the committee. Uh, this comes, uh, he is the second Trump aide uh, who has been found guilty of contempt of Congress. Steve Bannon was found guilty uh, last year of the same two charges. Uh, that case is on appeal. Ultimately, do you think that these two men uh, will see jail time? Well, I, you know, I... I guess I don't know. Uh, I don't know the nuances of will they see house arrest, will they plea down. Um, look, I, I think jail time would certainly be appropriate. Again, it's not like somebody made a mistake here and now they're having to, to pay the price to the Justice Department for a mistake they made. They proactively, over and over, repeatedly, and in some cases either fundraised or bragged about it, ignored a legal subpoena of Congress, which has the power of the courts, the same kind of subpoena of the courts. We just don't have the enforcement power without going through DOJ. 
so I think they deserve, frankly, any jail time they get. And there, look, there are people that have served time in jail, federal prisons and state prisons, for much less of a crime. For those of you just turning in, uh, we are looking at live pictures from outside the courthouse of Trump aide Peter Navarro. He is coming to the microphones right now, uh, and if he decides to speak, uh, we will bring that to you live. It looks like he is trying to decide uh, what to say, and we are talking right now with former Congressman uh, Adam Kinzinger, a former member of the January 6th uh, House Committee. Um, we are... Uh, Defend democracy is uh, is what is what the sign says right there. Um, so, Congressman Kinzinger, one of the other things that has been going on in the last week uh, beyond the Georgia case uh, is the sentencing of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. They are getting stiff sentences: uh, seventeen years, twenty-two years, eighteen years. Uh, Enrique Tario, Stuart Rhodes, that was a, a few months ago for Stuart Rhodes. Uh, they obviously uh, were the tip of the spear of the actual attempt uh, to uh, stop the count uh, in the mm-hmm. Capitol, to, to, to commit the riot uh, and, and more. Um, what was your reaction to that, to that sentencing? Again, I was pleased. I mean, you know, it's, it's tough because we're, what, two and a half, three years later, I, I always wish that the wheels of justice had turned a little faster, but look, it's, it is, we are where we are, and I think the Justice Department ultimately did a good job on these things. And, you know, this is the, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys. This isn't, again, just somebody that was out, you know, on that day, and they kind of let their emotions overtake them. Even if your emotions overtake you, you should be held responsible. But these are people that outside of the emotion, outside of the mob action, began, planned, uh, and frankly, intended to overthrow the government. I, I think that's what people need to remember is some of these groups actually had weapons stashed outside of Washington, D.C. to bring in at the point that Donald Trump would declare the Insurrection Act so they could be his law enforcement arm. That is chilling, because what that says is had Donald Trump really actually declared the Insurrection Act, had anything else had gone wrong, you would have had armed men on the Capitol in a firefight, and it would have been even far more of a coup than what we what we saw. So they deserve every bit they get. I have no sympathy for them, particularly. Congressman Kinzinger, stand by. I want to bring in Jamie Gangel, who's getting reaction from other members of the January 6th committee about the conviction of Peter Navarro, the former Trump aide, for refusing to comply with subpoenas from the January 6th committee, convicted of two charges uh, relating to refusing to comply with the congressional subpoenas. Uh, Jamie Gengel, what are you hearing it, from it, other members? It underscores just what, what Congressman Kinzinger just said, that uh, you know they feel that he deserved this. And I just heard from Tim Mulvey, who is the communications director, and he said on the record, quote, his defiance of the committee was brazen, like the Jamie, other- Jamie, I'm gonna interrupt you, yep. I'm sorry. We're gonna listen to Peter Navarro. Here we are with one of the most important constitutional separation of powers issues and people will not let me speak. This is my First Amendment right. This is what I'm going to do now uh, is allow... Um, the marshals just saw you. The marshals just saw you. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. You just assaulted me. That man just assaulted me. He stuck a flagpole in between my legs. Yeah, yeah. Don't touch there you go. You're All right. Now. They're calling services. I was just assaulted. Look, if you got a sign, no, I did it. Liar. 
I can hold it anywhere I want. This yeah. is public property. It's assault. I want to press charges. Let the man talk. Are you, are you interested in hearing him? Yeah, go ahead, Peter. Go ahead and talk. I don't agree with some of your shit, but go ahead and talk, man. Go ahead and talk. No, I did it. No, I did it. Go ahead and talk, man. Go ahead. It's that day for America. Not not because um, not because they were guilty verdicts, because I can't come out and have an honest, decent conversation with the people of America. People of America, I want you to understand that this is the problem we have right here. This kind of um, divide in our country uh, between the, the woke Marxist left and everybody else here. And this is nuts. So what, what I want to try to do here is have an interesting discussion about what just happened. That's what you all want to know. You want to know what just happened. So I'm going to give uh, Mr. Raleigh uh, first crack at this. And uh, there's some issues that each of my attorneys here, Mr. Irving, uh, Mr. Brand, where did these guys go? Uh, they're back there. Um, and let's just let's just do it. Now, look, I, I, I appreciate um, if you guys can work through the print. There's no problem with the print media. You got you get it right. I, I apologize to the pool camera, but maybe you can kind of you know that's what editors are for. So, Mr. Raleigh, have at it, my friend. Thank you. Um, listen, on behalf of Dr. Navarro, uh, we want to express our appreciation to the court, to Judge Meta, and to the jury that that considered this case. This is an important case. This is a landmark case. Uh, this case, while we have a decision and we respect the jury's verdict today, this case won't be decided here finally. It will be decided by the D.C. Court of Appeals. Um, this is the first time that a senior presidential aide who has served his president for four years has ever been held in contempt of Congress. There are legal issues here uh, that need to be decided by the Court of Appeals. Uh, Judge Maida decided, based upon an evidentiary hearing last week, that there was inadequate evidence to show that President Trump had formally instructed uh, Dr. Navarro to invoke executive privilege. Respectfully, we disagree with that decision. We think that uh, that uh, the the evidence established that that in fact President Trump instructed Dr. Navarro to invoke executive privilege. But in any event, we think that based upon the separation of powers between Congress and the executive, that uh, executive privilege is part and parcel of the office of the President of the United States and that no uh, express invocation of privilege was even necessary. Otherwise, uh, President Reagan, for example, would have no executive privilege and any confidential conversations he had with his senior aides at the time would be waived and you all could ask his aides what uh, President Reagan spoke to about about sensitive matters. So we think it's part and parcel of the office. We're confident that the Court of Appeals will hold to that effect, and this case is not over by a long shot. Okay. Oh, I, don't, I don't have anything much more to add to what Mr. Rally so, just so, said. So yeah, I, just today was a, an important step uh, in the direction uh, of a successful appeal. And, uh, that's about all I have to say. <laughs> you seem to have missed the joke there. <laughs> all right, uh, let me see if I can uh, break this down for you. And um, if you guys, you're good to go if you want. This, this is going to be a while. All right, so um, let's start with um, the fact that this is a landmark case. This is a landmark case that's bound for the Supreme Court. 
Why do I say that? <clears throat> this is the first time in the history of our republic that a senior White House advisor, an alter ego of the president, has ever been charged with the alleged crime. That's the first time that this has ever happened. Now, at the same time, what's so remarkable about this case is that even as the Department of Justice was bringing this case, they had a policy for more than 50 years that says people like me, senior White House advisors, alter egos of the president, cannot be compelled, cannot be compelled to testify before Congress. Absolute. Yet they brought the case. This case is a landmark case because it's about the constitutional separation of powers. That goes back to the days of George Washington when the legislative branch... All right, we're going to cut away from Professor Navarro. I do not know, know how long uh, this might, uh, this might uh, go. Uh, obviously, he feels that this is a landmark case that will end up at the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm not quite sure that legal experts believe this is going to end up at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, but let's uh, let's find out. First of all, let me check in with uh, Evan Perez. Um, I think this is probably going to go to the U.S. appeals court and then that's where it will end. Correct. I, I suspect that this is not going to go too far. But look, I mean, the, the, he has the, the right to make this claim. Sure. And but, you know, part of his problem, according to prosecutors and according to the case here, is that he just kind of ignored the, the subpoena, ignored Congress, and... Right, he didn't respond at all. Right, and then he tried to say that, the, you know, the, he tried to bring the former president, and he wanted the former president to come in and testify, and that got shut down by the judge. So in the end, he didn't really have much of a defense, and, and then that's partly what I think they're going to try to appeal, right? They're going to try to say that he didn't really have to make this assertion. Here's the thing, you know, in every one of the other the, the cases of, of the senior aides of the former president who had this assertion of, of executive privilege, you know, they brought their lawyers, they responded to Congress, said, this is why we're not showing up here, fight this out with the, with the former president, and we will show up whenever you work that out. And so you saw members of the former president's, uh, you know, White House counsel's office, they all came in because they were... Uh, they negotiated, you know, a deal with Congress to to get access to the testimony that the committee rightfully had uh, a, a right to do. So that's part of Peter Navarro's problem is that, you know, he sort of tried to ignore this issue. Uh, and then that's, that's why the Congress, that's why the Justice Department ended up bringing this case. And then he wrote a book about it. And he wrote a book about a lot of the things that they wanted to know about. So. Right. Um, so it wasn't so sacrosanct after all. Uh, Jamie Gengel, I rudely interrupted you before because Peter Navarro was about to speak. You were telling me uh, and our, our, our beautiful viewers about what you were hearing from other members of the January 6th committee in addition to uh, our own uh, Adam Kinzinger, who I'm going right. to go to right after this. Uh, please step back. Tell us again. What is the reaction? They tried to get Navarro to testify to provide documents. He refused. He has been found guilty today of contempt of Congress. So wh what I've heard is they feel that he deserved to be found guilty today. And we got this statement from Tim Mulvey, who is the communications director for the January 6th committee. And he says, quote, 
His, meaning Navarro's, defiance of the committee was brazen. Like the other witnesses who attempted to stonewall the committee, he thought he was above the law. He is not. That is a good thing for the rule of law. And then uh, Mulvey goes on to say, I imagine that those under indictment right now are getting a good reminder of that. So, you know, it's not just uh, that Navarro was convicted today, but it does send a message to uh, other people who may be unindicted co-conspirators or who may be facing uh, the case in Georgia that uh, this is a wake-up call. They can face conviction. Uh, I want to bring in uh, former Judge uh, Shira Scheinlin right now to get her take uh, on all this. Judge uh, uh, Scheinlin, um, tell us, uh, first of all, your view of this uh, conviction. Did you think that this was just a fait accompli? Of of course the jury was going to find him guilty of contempt of Congress because... That's what he did. Absolutely. There was no defense here. And that's why he didn't have anything to say in the courtroom, only outside the courtroom now. If he really had a defense, he could have taken the stand and explained his point of view. But the fact of the matter is there was no defense. He simply ignored the order to come and show up. You have to assert the privilege to every question. Some questions, maybe you don't have a privilege. Maybe you think you do. But you have to show up and assert it. He made no effort on the documents. He made no effort on testimony. He just ignored them. And you know, the executive privilege belongs to the executive. It had to be asserted if it was going to be by someone. And it really wasn't because he didn't come to, he didn't come to Congress. And so I agree with others who have said what's important here is the message that it sends. You cannot ignore Congress. You cannot ignore a grand jury. You cannot ignore a court. So in other words, beyond just ignoring it, he could have gone to Congress and said, and sat and, and they asked him questions and he could have said to every one of them, but especially to the ones that he thought were, it was relevant to, uh, I believe that that falls under executive privilege. I'm not going to answer it. Uh, yeah. And just gone through that procedure, that those motions, and at least shown that respect to the, to, the congr- to the legislative branch of Congress, even while not answering their questions. That's absolutely right. You got it. And that's what goes on in grand jury investigations all the time. When somebody thinks they have an attorney-client privilege, they have to come. They have to assert it. I think you saw when President Trump was testifying recently in the New York state actions, he asserted the privilege over and over again. I think it was hundreds of times, but there's a transcript of that. And that's what uh, Mr. or Dr. Navarro had to do. And he didn't. He just didn't show up. All right, Judge, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Then, of course, there are the troubles of President Biden. He is leaving this hour for a major international trip as a new CNN poll shows negative numbers on his approval ratings. Two people who once worked in his administration will join me. That's ahead. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. 
When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In our politics lead moments from now, President Joe Biden uh, will get on Air Force One and fly to India for Saturday's G20 summit. And one thing that is sure to follow him there, the stark reality that his re-election is anything but guaranteed, as evidenced by a brand new CNN poll out today. Biden's approval rating stands at 39 percent. Jimmy Carter, a one-term president, is the only other president who had a worse approval rating at this point in his presidency. This, of course, could reopen the Oval Office door to the current Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, as we're finding no clear leader in a hypothetical matchup between President Biden and a man who could be a convicted felon by Election Day. 46% of voters, in fact, say they would take literally any Republican over Biden. And the big question, has Biden lost the locker room? 67% of Democrats say they would prefer a different Democratic nominee. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is at the magic wall for us to break down these numbers. Jeff, what are Biden's biggest liabilities, according to our new poll, and are they fixable? Well, Jake, you mentioned that 39% approval rating. When you look inside these numbers, here are some of the reasons why. The economy. How have Biden's policies affected U.S. economic conditions? 58% say that they have worsened the conditions. Now, of course, this is the president's calling card, the uh, legislation, the laws that he has signed into um, from infrastructure to the Inflation Reduction Act to lowering drug prices. Clearly, those uh, examples have not made their way into the consciousness of the American public. 58% say that his policies have worsened the conditions. But when you go a little bit farther, stamina, that is one of the central questions here. Does the president have the stamina and sharpness to serve effectively as president. 74% of Americans say no. Only 26% say yes. Go into that a little bit more. When you compare this, among Democrats, independents, and Republicans, now versus March, these numbers have fallen throughout the spring and summer months. 62% in March, now only 50% of Democrats. Of course, independents, a central number here. Republicans, of course, would be lower than that. But these are some of the reasons that uh, the approval rating is so low, and there's just a pessimistic mood about this president and the economy, Jake. In any election, but particularly close elections, one cannot overstate the importance of voter turnout. How motivated are the Republican Party's voters and the Democratic Party's voters to get to the polls in the 2024 race. Jake, that is one of the central interesting findings here. If you look at the GOP motivation, first of all, and they, of course, are having a robust primary campaign. Several candidates are out there every single day. There's been a debate. So there certainly is interest in that. But motivated to vote in the 2024 election, 71% of Republicans say they're extremely motivated to vote. 17% say they're very motivated to vote. 
Take a look at this compared to Democrats. Only 61% say they're extremely motivated to vote. You may not think that that is that big of a difference, but this is where the idea of a third party candidate could come in. If there's not enough excitement uh, for the president, for his ticket, could there be an opening for a Green Party candidate or a no labels candidate? That's why enthusiasm here is certainly so interesting. And of course, we are more than a year away, so this can change. But at this point, this is a good benchmark. We'll certainly keep our eye on this number here over the next year. And of course, the election is not going to be held today. Right. But if it were, this poll shows it would be a dead heat between Biden and every Republican candidate, except one. Tell us about that. And that one is former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Look at these numbers here. 49% to 43%. She's the only candidate outside the margin of error, the only candidate against the president in this hypothetical head-to-head matchup. And she's been talking about this on the campaign trail extensively. That is because of educated, college-educated voters and women voters are making up that difference in margin there. But if you look across the board here, there is no clear leader. It's within the margin of error of every single potential candidate. And that is why this is a potential a worrisome spot for the president, for his team. Of course, he is well known. He has the biggest megaphone of anyone. But Jake, one thing is clear. We are in a very divided country. This election, this should be a reality check. It will be very close as all of them have been recently, but certainly this one will be as well. Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny, thanks. Uh, Perhaps our next guest can find some silver linings in all this. Um, Let's have them smile now because they've had grim faces for the last five minutes. Kate Bettingfield was the Biden White House Communications Director. Jamal Simmons served as a Deputy Assistant to President Biden and Communications Director for Vice President Kamala Harris. Thanks for bringing the smiles back. I was watching you guys (laughs) during Jeff's presentation. Oh, I've seen so much worse than this. We're just serious people, Jake. We're just serious people. So you're going to try for some um, silver linings. I was thinking for one. Well, a good news for you is that Nikki Haley is not yet uh, beating Donald Trump in the polls. So that, 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 is, that is the one good news for you. But, but seriously, we asked voters if Biden inspires confidence. 28% says yes, said yes. 72% say no. This is an incumbent president. How, how do you turn that around? Is, that even, is it even possible? Oh, of course it's possible. How? We're a How year is the question? How? out from Election Day. How is it possible? You, you communicate to people about what it is that you're doing. One of the things I think the campaign is doing very well, they are running ads with real Americans telling their story about how they are benefiting from the Biden-Harris administration. I think that is a very key point because it's not just the president saying it. It's not just the vice president saying it. It's somebody who looks and sounds just like you telling their story about how they're benefiting from the President. You also you also draw the contrast, right? right? I mean, let's not forget Donald Trump has three fewer candles on his birthday cake than Joe Biden. He also <laughs> sure. has 91 more criminal counts on his record than Joe Biden. True. So, in addition to having the president out, showing his vigor, you know, speaking of ads, the campaign has an ad out spotlighting the president's secret visit to Kiev, where you know he uh, went and was uh, it was a display of force. So you spotlight the president's vigor, but you also draw the contrast. We're talking about Donald Trump. Trump leading a Republican Party that is all about chaos. And so the challenge for the campaign and what I think the Biden campaign will do for the next year is to really draw those contrasts. And that is what, at the end of the day, will move some of these numbers. And also remember this, Jake. People in America are optimists, right? So we're always thinking about what deals coming around the corner. Who's going to be next? And I think what you're going to see, this is not normal times. The numbers aren't normal, but these aren't normal times. But as people get closer and closer to a real decision between a real live human being, Joe Biden, and probably a real live human being, Donald Trump, 
they're just not going for the chaos again. I know you guys want it to be Donald Trump, and it likely will be, <laughs> but we don't know that for a fact. I will say, you said Donald Trump is three years older. He is. The American people do not see Donald Trump as the, in the same light that they see Joe Biden in terms of his frailty and stamina and vigor. They just don't. But but they see him as a threat to democracy. We've seen that the, the charges against him that are related to trying to do nothing less than overthrow our government, essentially on January 6th, moves people. They also see him as somebody who does not care about them. Yes, he has a very fer- he has a very fervent base within the Republican well, this Party. Is, this, 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 for, dead heat. this is a dead but, heat election. Right which now. is a reflection of how polarized the country is. You have the Republican base that is is motivated to get out for Donald Trump. You have the Democratic base, which, by the way, in addition to liking a lot of what Joe Biden's done, is also motivated by Donald Trump. But, and then you have a slice of people in the middle yeah. who reject the chaos who don't like the fact that Donald Trump put three justices on the Supreme Court who overturned Roe v. Wade. These are real And still are not in, you forgot the last part of it, and are still not in Biden's camp. That's the point I'm making. Like, you're running against a guy who did, let's just, let, let me posit that everything you're saying about Trump is right. And still, it's 46% Biden, 47% Trump. You still don't have those people. Because we live in a hyper-polarized environment. The days of a president at a 60%, 65% approval rating, at least in the foreseeable future, probably over. But look at the midterms in 2022. We have a test case as recently as a year ago where voters were motivated to come out, reject largely the Republican agenda. And so that's what the Biden campaign and the Biden White House uh, we'll be putting on display for the next year. By the way, let's not forget we're still a year out from the election. More, more than a year. I will just say this before we close. I lived in a neighborhood where people would ride up to my dad, who was kind of a political person in Detroit. They would ride by, and they'd say, on Saturday before election day, Larry, who are we voting for on, on Tuesday? And then he'd say whoever the person was that he liked for city council or mayor, whatever it was. People aren't thinking about this stuff right now, and I think we got to keep that in mind. That's not a presidential race, though, Jamal. Okay. We have a <laughs> you year, would be surprised. We have a year and change surprised. to talk about this to be continued. Thanks for being here, Kate and Jamal. Appreciate it. Former Trump White House aide Peter Navarro found guilty of contempt of Congress uh, just the, the about an hour ago over his refusal to testify to the January 6th committee. What kind of sentence might Navarro so be looking at? We're going to have more on that breaking news next. We have an interesting discussion about what just happened. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. we got a lot of breaking news for you this afternoon. This hour, the prison sentence for one of the stars of the hit sitcom That 70s Show, Danny Masterson, at least 30 years behind bars. How his Church of Scientology played a major role in this case, possibly slowing down the prosecution. Plus, growing calls to disqualify Donald Trump in the race for 2024. One top state election official from a battleground state joining me says his office has been flooded with emails and letters and calls making a case to question Trump's eligibility. And leading this hour, the major verdict in just moments ago for Peter Navarro, the former Trump White House trade advisor, a jury finding him guilty on two counts of contempt of Congress. Let's start there with CNN's Paula Reid. Paula, walk us through how Peter Navarro got here. 
Peter Navarro, a former senior Trump White House advisor, received a subpoena from the January 6th committee, one subpoena for documents, and then also seeking his testimony. He refused to comply, which is how today he ended up being convicted of two counts of contempt of Congress. Now, he is going to be the second Trump advisor who has been convicted of contempt of Congress. Today in closing arguments, the Justice Department argued that it's not that hard to follow along with a subpoena and that Navarro here made a choice not to comply. And they insist that the government only works if people follow the rules. Now, there are, of course, some exceptions to having to comply with a subpoena. Navarro previously argued in pretrial proceedings unsuccessfully that he didn't have to comply because former President Trump had asserted a privilege. Now, in court, his lawyer made other arguments, including insisting that the subpoena was actually not that simple and that it did not specify where he needed to go in the Capitol complex. They also argued that prosecutors had not established that Navarro did this intentionally and that it wasn't just an accident or a mistake. Now, again, he is the second Trump advisor to be convicted of contempt of Congress, the first, of course, being Steve Bannon, but Bannon has appealed his conviction, and it's expected that Navarro will do the same. His lawyers have signaled that they will put up other legal challenges if he was convicted. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, the former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Ellie, um, what arguments did the parties, Navarro and the prosecutors, make at trial? Well, Jake, so the prosecution's argument was very straightforward. We served us, Congress served a subpoena. Peter Navarro knew it, and he defied that subpoena. That's it. Peter Navarro's defenses here were a bit shorthanded because the judge cut him off before the trial and said, I'm not going to allow you to say the reason I defied that subpoena was because Donald Trump told me to do so because the judge had a whole hearing on this and said, there's just no evidence that that actually happened in a specific detailed way. So Peter Navarro was left with this sort of hodgepodge of defenses. He said, well, the subpoena didn't specify which room I was supposed to go to within the Capitol complex, and the prosecution didn't establish that I knew of the subpoena and knowingly def uh, defied it. The jury very quickly rejected both of those defenses, and that's why we got the verdict today. So Navarro uh, gave a, a press conference uh, after his conviction, and he acted as if this was landmark uh, a landmark moment. This was, you know, a Plessy v. Ferguson. This was going to go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. I is that true? Is this a historic case? Are we going to see this argued before uh, the justices? I would certainly not put it up there with Plessy versus Ferguson. He didn't say that. I'm, 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 I'm being his. I'm, I'm, I'm joking there. But he did no, say I it was going to go to the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, look, he certainly has a right to appeal this to the D.C. Court of Appeals. That is the right of any person who's been convicted of any crime in the federal system. So he will have his appeal there. He will certainly try to get it up to the U.S. Supreme Court if he loses, or perhaps if the government loses at that intermediate level, they'll try to get it up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Of course, it's up to the Supreme Court whether to take any case. They only take a very small minority of cases, usually under 5%. Uh, on the one hand, this does present issues of separation of powers, executive branch, legislative branch, Congress. On the other hand, this is a very straightforward case. I'm not sure there's really a lot of meat on the bone there for the Supreme Court to work with. I want to make sure I understood something for, that you said earlier. So he, yeah. he, had, he had talked about, Navarro talked about how Donald Trump didn't want him to comply. And you said that the judge didn't let him introduce that in the case. 
because they had had a, a previous hearing, right, an evidentiary hearing right. where they looked at that to see if that evidence was good enough to be brought up in trial. Is that right? Exactly. So Peter Navarro made clear to the judge his defense was going to be Donald Trump told me to invoke executive privilege. And the judge said basically, okay, let's see if you can establish the facts that will support that. And so the judge had an evidentiary hearing. And what came out of it is that Navarro had some sort of vague conversation with Donald Trump. They pointed to some of Donald Trump's social media posts objecting to this. But the judge said, there's really nothing here. There's no actual evidence that Donald Trump actually told you, Peter Navarro, to invoke executive privilege. And that's the way it works. If a judge finds a defendant has a very broad right to make a defense, but if a judge finds there's zero factual basis for it, then a judge can close the door on that defense before trial. And that's what happened here. Right. Before trial, judges often decide if evidence is good enough to be brought up before the jury. What kind of sentence is Navarro looking at? So I think the best guy post here is Steve Bannon, who was very similarly situated, has been sentenced to four months in federal prison. Now, he hasn't had to serve that yet because his appeal is still pending. But Steve Bannon was sentenced to four months. Now, the two counts that Peter Navarro has been convicted on are both federal misdemeanors for contempt of Congress, meaning the maximum sentence for each of them is one year in prison. But this is also a really unusual federal misdemeanor where there's a mandatory minimum of one month on each count. Now, that minimum can be run together. But this judge, when it comes time for sentencing, usually happens a couple months down the line, has no choice to at least one month in federal prison. That's a mandatory minimum. At least one month uh, if it goes forward. Uh, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. To the politics lead now. And a live look at Joint Base Andrews in Maryland right now where President Biden and Air Force One are about to be wheels up heading to India to meet with national leaders from the 20 largest economies in the world, while Mr. Biden leaves behind a host of worries at home. One of his biggest, his son, Hunter Biden, and a possible impeachment inquiry brought on by House Republicans. Brand new CNN reporting out today shows more than a dozen House Democrats and aides are confident they can defend Biden, but they want guidance on how, something that the White House is not willing to give as of now. In a new CNN poll today, the public perception they're up against, 44% of Americans believe that Joe Biden's actions regarding the Hunter Biden investigation have been appropriate compared to 55% who say Joe Biden's actions regarding Hunter Biden have been inappropriate. Let's go to CNN's Kayla Tausche at the White House. Uh, And and Kayla, uh, you have some uh, new reporting. Some Democrats are frustrated with Biden. Why? Well, they're frustrated, Jake, because they feel like it's a missed opportunity to fill the air with their defense for why the president, in their view, acted appropriately and to try to dismiss some of those allegations. Um, You know, it's something that a lot of Democrats have been talking about behind the scenes. And now the frustration is moving toward a fever pitch where many of them went on the record with CNN telling Annie Grayer and Lauren Fox things like it's a missed opportunity or it creates the possibility for a false equivalency with former President Donald Trump and some of the the allegations and the indictments that he's facing on the other side of the aisle. All of that has led them to seek more coordination from the White House so that they can be singing essentially from the same hymnal, so to speak, and to try to bat down many of these concerns. But the White House, for its part, uh, is not willing to go there. A senior Biden aide telling me that the White House is just simply not willing 
to engage on anything that could be seen as impacting ongoing legal proceedings or intervention in a proceeding like that. That being said, Jake, Impeachment is a totally different animal. They see that as a political maneuver by Republicans, and they're preparing a playbook behind the scenes to intervene, to essentially flood the zone if Republicans start to move in that direction more than just talk, and if McCarthy actually conjures up the votes uh, to move forward with a formal impeachment inquiry. All of that is still sort of an amorphous effort at this stage, but I know that it's one that White House aides are watching closely, uh, but you know, it, it's something that Democrats are frustrated with. The White House says essentially, look, you can pick up the phone, you can call us anytime, but there are some issues that we just simply will not engage on. All right, Kayla Toshi at the White House for us. Thank you so much. I want to bring in Biden campaign co-chair Cedric Richmond. Uh, good to see you again. The latest CNN poll shows President Biden in a dead heat with Donald Trump, 47% for Donald Trump, uh, 46% for Joe Biden. President Biden, nearly 7 in 10 Democrats say they want a candidate other than Biden to be the Democratic nominee. And then there's this. Voters say Biden and Trump are both equally favorable and unfavorable. Now, the Biden campaign has argued that he is the Democrat best positioned to beat Donald Trump, in part because he beat him in 2020. Is it possible that that's just not the case anymore? No, I wholeheartedly disagree with that argument. I also take some issue with the CNN poll, Jake, that you all have been running all day. So you're saying that President Biden and the former president are tied? You even mentioned Nikki Haley or at least the channel did earlier. But what you're not talking about are the positions. When you talk about the fact that they want a nationwide abortion ban, that changes the number. When you talk about the fact that the president capped the price of insulin at $35, that increases his numbers. The fact that he took on the NRA and won, the fact that he's created 13 million jobs. That's what the campaign is for. And we believe that when you tell people about those accomplishments, those numbers change tremendously. But has the president not been telling the American people about those accomplishments for years now. He's been governing. He's been uniting the West so we can continue to make sure that Putin does not take Ukraine and doing all of the things that he should do as president. Now that the campaign starts, we go out and we talk about all the things that we've accomplished. You see us now with ad buys. I think an ad will run tonight during uh, the NFL game that talks about the 13 million jobs Uh, that were created, 800,000 manufacturing jobs. So we have a great story to tell. And we know that when we tell that story, the numbers change. We saw it in 2020 when everyone predicted a red wave, including uh, CNN. And I think you did a show on a red wave, too. We proved that it didn't happen. It's because we talked to voters about abortion ban, about freedoms, about the economy, about building the middle class from the bottom up and the middle out. And voters chose Democrats. So one of the one of the concerns we see when we dive into the numbers here is that 76 percent of voters are are seriously concerned uh, that President Biden's age might negatively impact his ability to to serve another full term. Seventy three percent of voters are worried about his current mental and physical competence. Now, uh, former ambassador and governor Nikki Haley, who is the only Republican candidate we have, as of now, who actually beats Biden in the poll, who's, who's outside the margin of error. Uh, he's basically in a dead heat with all the other Republicans. Uh, he might be up one or down one, but within the margin of error, all the others, not Nikki Haley. She beats him. Haley has argued that a vote for Biden would really end up being a vote for Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, do you not acknowledge that the perception of his 
frailty, perceived frailty, is hurting his campaign, is hurting his reelection chances. Well, first, Jake, I'm glad you started with Nikki Haley and her position on abortion, because I'll tell you that if you look at the vote in Ohio just a month ago, a swing state, they soundly rejected the extreme positions on abortion. And that's Nikki Haley. Now, about the president's age, you're going to voters will see his vigor. Voters will see his accomplishments. If you just look at uh, his schedule, he's traveling around the world over the next four and a half days to continue to show American leadership on the world stage. So when they compare President Biden's travel to that of uh, Republicans, even Republicans that are running for president, he's traveling almost 30 percent more than they are. But more importantly, uh, this is about American families. And I think American families are going to look at the issues they face and they're going to look at who's addressing those issues, who's talking about those issues and who's doing something about it. And that's going to be President Biden. I want you to take a listen to what some Democratic uh, senators have taken away from President Biden's poll numbers today. Take a listen. I think the people basically have spoken loud and clear that they're not happy with the two choices and only two choices. And so there could be a third party candidate. I think that's, that's up to the public to decide that. The more the better in terms of pushing that message and making the American people aware of President Biden's achievements. Yes, more aggressive earlier and more widely I think is the right way to go. Maybe we don't do a good enough job messaging uh, about things like the infrastructure bill and the PACT Act and things like that. So those are varied criticisms from uh, in order there, uh, interspersed with uh, our own Manu Raju, uh, Senator Manchin of West Virginia, Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut and Senator uh, Tester uh, of Montana. Do you, do, you do you consider any of those criticisms accurate? Look, I respect them all. And I think that um, they proved the point that it's now to go in time to go into campaign mode and talk about the president's accomplishments because they are great accomplishments. Beating the NRA, passing infrastructure, which no other president could do, although they promised it. Those are the things that uh, I believe those senators are talking about. We need to go out and talk about. And just like the Republicans are one trick pony talking about the president's uh, age, that's all they talk about. So, of course, the poll numbers uh, show Republicans uh, highly uh, question it. But we have to go out and talk about the accomplishments just as much as they talk about lies and misdirection and red herrings. We have to be solely focused on what not only this president and vice president, but what this Congress has done, uh, the Democratic Senate and the Democratic House when we had it. And I think that that's going to prove to be a winning formula once again for all Democrats and for President Biden and President Vice President Harris. All right, Cedric Richmond, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. On the right side of your screen, you see President Biden, live images from Joint Base Base Andrews, uh, getting on Air Force One. He's about to take off and go to India for the G20 uh, summit. We are going to get our panel's reaction to all of this, uh, to what Cedric Richmond just said, and to the polling information and more. That's uh, coming up after we uh, pay some uh, bills. Stay with us. This just in, Hurricane Lee has now strengthened to a major Category 4 storm with winds at 130 miles per hour. Just 12 hours ago, it was only a Category 1. Hurricane Lee is expected to become a Category 5 storm in the next 24 hours. There is Increasing confidence the center of Hurricane Lee will near the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico this weekend and into early next week. 
We will keep an eye on it for you. Turning back to the politics lead and the dismal poll new numbers for President Biden. Let's bring in my panel, Jason Osborne, Ashley Allison, and Francesca Chambers. Ashley, you just heard Cedric Richmond uh, defending the president, making the case. He said, don't look at the numbers. Look at what we're going to be arguing about what President Biden has done. Do you buy it? I think you have to look at both, actually. I think Joe Biden has a remarkable record as president and what he has accomplished. And the campaign does need to get out there and sell it directly to the American people. I also think you can't ignore how Americans are feeling right now. We're in a period in time where we are just coming off the COVID pandemic. People really don't actually understand why they're feeling the way they're feeling because we're in a new era of time. And so while many of Joe Biden's policies are great for middle-class Americans, poor people, they might not be feeling it directly right now. And so the case is that I am fighting for you. I know things are not perfect, but keep keep working with me and we will improve. And I think that is a winning message. We saw it in 2020, we saw it in 2022, and I think it could get him over the finish line, but you cannot ignore the numbers. I don't think the campaign is ignoring the numbers, but I think they are proud of his record and they should be. So Jason, one of the things that I thought was most interesting is uh, Joe Biden is basically dead even with every Republican running except for Ambassador Nikki Haley, who just far and away beats him, eating into um, whatever advantage Biden might have with women, with college-educated voters. Um, But how come Republican voters don't automatically see that and say, she's conservative, let's go with it? Well, I think, I mean, this whole poll, and I love the poll, actually, I was starting to read through the top lines on it, and I was just starting to get into the Nikki Haley numbers. And I'm fascinated by them for a couple of different reasons. One, I look at her debate performance where I think she did incredibly well. Very strong. She set herself out there as kind of a reasonable voice in the Republican Party. She didn't engage in the back and forth of, you know, let's talk about Trump, et cetera. You know, she, she took her hits, of course, but I think she gave a lot more than she took. And so I think as... The, we are moving forward in this campaign. I think you're going to start seeing more and more of Nikki Haley coming out there. It'll be interesting to see because nobody's really attacked her yet. And I don't know what those attacks would be that she hasn't faced before, right? So in her previous elections as governor, she had some attacks against her. I don't know what they are. I'm just assuming that yeah. they had some. That once we start seeing, all right, well, she's the next person. And I still think DeSantis is there, right there. The one person I think that was interesting in your poll was... Vivek, mm-hmm. where he was in that poll. Yeah. Um, and again, I hadn't gotten that far down, but I, I found that very interesting that he was at 8%. Now, again, the election is not tomorrow. Right. It's next year. So a lot's going to move in that time frame. In terms of Biden's numbers, what I'd love to see is this number that Jeff had talked about uh, on your previous um, couple hits ago, that the 62% of the strongly, you know, getting out there and voting, mm-hmm. and then the 70% that are not going to vote for Biden. I wanted to see where those people that were at the 62%, uh, percent, where they fit in that 70%. Because to your point, I think they're going to lose a lot of those folks if a Republican like Nikki Haley separates herself. And, and, uh, and Francesca, um, 46% of registered voters said they would take any Republican over Joe Biden. Any Republican, keep in mind that includes somebody who might be a convicted felon by election day. There's a strong partisan divide. That didn't actually surprise me particularly much, 
given what we've seen in the other polling so far. But with respect to President Biden and what the campaign has been saying, if we just take a step back for a moment, they know that they have a problem here. That's why they're spending $25 million on advertising right now, running an ad during the NFL. If you look at the polling, they're seeing trouble with black voters, a lot more trouble with Hispanic voters. They've got potential problems with young voters heading into this election, as well as uh, working class voters as well. And they're advertising in areas where he would need to win a lot of those demographic groups over. So regardless of what they're saying, they seem to understand that they have a problem. As far as the, the polling itself and what voters care about, when it comes to the economy, yes, inflation is at 3.2% right now. But if you, that is year over year. If you look like a year from ago, it was at eight or 9% higher than the year before. So the question that voters are going to ask is, you know, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And right now voters are saying when it comes to the economy, they don't feel like they are. Well, four years ago, I don't know, but right. three years ago. Three years ago, <laughs> I, I'm giving the colloquial four right. years ago, but but during the pandemic, inflation right. is higher year over year over the last couple of years. Right. I think, I think the question is, though, will the economy trump all other issues? And in 2022, it did not. Uh, many voters were asked, do you like the direction the country is going in? And people said no, and folks assigned that to the Democrats. But then when people went into the polls during midterms, there was not a red wave, and that was what Cedric was talking about. Yeah. And so I think it is the economy and. I don't think voters look at one issue anymore. And when you have to choose between having a constitutional right as a woman or you know the economy teetering back and forth and not really sure what party is going to do the best, you usually go for the issue of having your constitutional rights. So, so Cedric took a little ding at me saying that I did a show about the red wave in 2020. I think he meant 2022. Mm-hmm. And what I recall is I did a show based on what one Democratic pollster who's sympathetic to Biden told me, which was it was going to be the head wins against Democrats versus the head cases against Republicans. Some of these oddball uh, uh, candidates that they had out there. And actually, he was right that it was it was both the head wins mm-hmm. hurt the Democrats in the House races and some of their more extreme candidates and the head cases hurt Republicans in capturing the Senate. So we'll see if that has, that's the same uh, problem uh, in this election. No, I absolutely agree. But I, I think to your point on the economy, it's it's very hard to sit there and campaign on what you've done for the economy to somebody who's impacted by the economy. Absolutely. Right. And so that's something that's kind of out of Biden's control. Mm-hmm. It's out of you know, the Republicans control, except to the extent that they're able to go out there and say, this is what I would do with the economy. Because if you're having to defend what you've done on the economy and that person is still sitting there saying, my mortgage rates mm-hmm. just went up 5%. Yeah. That's very hard. And no doubt, and no doubt that abortion rights, to your point, will be a big issue in the next election. They're absolutely counting on that. They're making an argument about democracy as well. The Biden campaign has an ad out just today on democracy issues. As yeah, well. and this will be the first presidential election since Roe v. Wade was overturned, where right. it's no longer just theoretical, where it's an actual thing. A lot of people didn't believe uh, that abortion rights were on the ballot and... and uh, Anyway, uh, we'll continue this discussion. Great panel. Thank you so much for being here. There's been a lot of talk recently about uh, Democrats uh, and others trying to use the 14th Amendment uh, to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in some states. Is is that a a real proposal? Can that really be done? We're going to talk to two two top state election officials uh, to respond to these growing calls. Stay with us. (laughs) 
A new lawsuit filed in Colorado is trying to keep Donald Trump's name off the ballot. This lawsuit claims that under the 14th Amendment, anyone who has taken an oath to uphold the Constitution is barred from holding future office if they engage in insurrection or aid insurrectionists. This is an argument that has been made by some legal scholars, and now a growing number of organizations are calling on secretaries of state to disqualify the former president because of his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Efforts, I should note, he has not been convicted in any court of having done anything illegal for, at least not as of this broadcast. I'm joined right now by two secretaries of state, Steve Simon of Minnesota and Jocelyn Benson of Michigan. Both are Democrats. Secretary Benson, uh, let me start with you. Is this something that the state of Michigan is looking into? I'm going to go to Secretary Simon first. Secretary Simon, is, is this something uh, that your, your state, the state of Minnesota, is looking into at all? Well, in terms of our office, the Office of Secretary of State, we've been very clear. This is not our call. We are not the eligibility police, whether it's a constitutional argument or a residency argument or an age argument. That in Minnesota is left to the courts. We have a tool. We have a vehicle in law for people to make these kinds of challenges. So if what you're asking is whether I or, or, or our office, if we are considering unilaterally acting, we are not and we will not. Our presumption is that if someone files for office in Minnesota, they are entitled to a spot on the ballot unless and until a court tells us otherwise. So that, uh, that certainly makes sense. You need a legal precedent, I would say. What about the politics of it? Um, David Frum, uh, who is a, a political pundit of sorts and writer, he uh, wrote on Twitter, quote, Suppose secretaries of state in one or more swing states succeeded in keeping Trump off the ballot. Then suppose President Biden wins re-election by winning the electoral votes of states that debarred Trump. What does this country look like afterward? Chaos, unquote. I mean, he's looking at the idea that this would be an unprecedented move uh, and politically it would be very problematic. You are in a swing state. How do you think that politically this would play out? Well, I think it's safe to say there's risk. He's enunciated some of that risk. Arguably, there's risk the other way as well. That's why I think this should be the province and is in most states, I gather, the province of the courts and not elected officials like me uh, or others. They should decide it based on the facts and based on the law and without regard necessarily to political considerations. I assume that's what's going to happen here. I assume that this one way or another will find its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, whether by way of Colorado or any other state where there might be a pending lawsuit. The U.S. Supreme Court on planet Earth would never not not this court and not on this planet would never keep Donald Trump's name off uh, a ballot in any state. I, I can't envision that ever happening, just practically speaking. Do you? I mean, look, I, I, it's it's hard to say in this sense. I mean, you're right. It seems on its surface um, unlikely. But I have learned a long time ago, guessing what courts are going to do is problematic. I mean, this is a legal theory that's been embraced by people on both sides of the political spectrum, conservatives as well as progressives. So I don't know. I, there's no telling. And who knows what way it arrives at the court through what case based on what findings by a court below. I just don't know. Secretary Benson, welcome back. We're having some technical issues Thanks. with you. Is uh, this idea of, of keeping Donald Trump's name off of the ballot in the state of Michigan because of the 14th Amendment, is this something that you are seriously considering? 
Well, I think it's a compelling legal question. And there, there is an existing lawsuit in our state that was filed several weeks ago. And now we see other cases popping up around the country that will ultimately ensure the proper place for this determination is made in the courts, which it should be. So it's something we're seriously looking at. And I've been talking with colleagues in other states as well about this as we proceed to create a process that ensures any precedent here does also not allow this to be misused in the future by officials who might want to block candidates from the ballot simply because they disagree with them politically. Ultimately, the U.S. Supreme Court on a national issue like this is going to be the final arbiter. I expect that decision will come sooner rather than later, but we should also expect this as a question, as an issue to really be a cloud throughout the entire uh, election cycle. Your counterpart, uh, Secretary Benson, in Georgia, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about this. It's titled, I Can't Keep Trump Off the Ballot. And in it, he writes, for a Secretary of State to remove a candidate would only reinforce the grievances of those who see the system as rigged and corrupt. Doesn't he have a point? Yeah, there's a lot of real concerns there. And frankly, one of the biggest things that is uh, impressing upon me in this moment <laughs> isn't simply this question of are state election officials really the proper you know, d- deciders in this as unilateral decision makers? I don't think so. I think the courts are. But secondly, our job as, as state election officials is to ensure people can trust the system. People have faith in their vote and our democracy. And though I will follow the law and uphold the Constitution, whatever that may be, as first and foremost. A North Star for me is ensuring our democracy is one that gives people choices, that respects voters and political parties uh, opportunity to elect their preferred candidates. So all of that is is tied up in this as well. And it's why we as state election officials really aren't the proper arbiters of this decision. It really is the courts. And that's ultimately how this is going to play out. All right, Secretaries of State, Steve Simon and Jocelyn Benson, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank thanks you. for having us. A major prison sentence today for actor Danny Masterson. We're going to go live to Los Angeles next. In our Law and Justice lead, actor Danny Masterson, one of the stars from That 70s Show, was sentenced today to 30 years to life in prison. He was given the maximum penalty for raping two women at his home in the 2000s. This comes after Masterson was convicted in June on two of three counts of rape. CNN Stephanie Elam has been following the story. Stephanie, what's been the reaction to Masterson's sentencing? Well, it's definitely a very stiff sentence here for Masterson, Jake. We are looking at the fact that he's getting 15 years for both of those uh, accounts, one, 15 each, and so 30 years total that will be served consecutively. Um, and just taking a listen to how uh, the district attorney, the Los Angeles County District Attorney, Reinhold Mueller, expressed his, uh, you know, his uh, plea, his pleasure with this, saying that this was the appropriate sentence for Masterson. In fact, take a little bit of a listen here to what he said. I'm very happy for the victims because this was a day that they had been looking forward to and they got their justice. It's a long time coming. That's first and foremost. Um, But also um, being very thankful uh, for the jury to come to kind of see through everything and uh, recognize what the evidence is and that this defendant needed to be held accountable. He also pointed to the two named uh, uh, individuals who came forward and spoke about what Masterson had done, the victims who also were present in court. He said that they were very helpful in this case as well. Now, on the other side, uh, Masterson's attorney, Sean Hawley, also spoke, uh, really committed 
to going back to the courts on this case. Take a listen. Mr. Masterson did not commit the crimes for which he has been convicted. And we and the appellate lawyers, who are the best and the brightest in the country, are confident that these convictions will be overturned. And the district attorney's office uh, making it clear that that third count that was uh, where the jury was deadlocked earlier in May when they were looking at this, they said they're not going to go back and re-prosecute that, that they're uh, satisfied with these two uh, guilty verdicts here and that he's been sentenced for these two, Jake. Stephanie Masterson uh, is a Scientologist, uh, a member of the Church of Scientology. Uh, the church is said to have played a role uh, in his, his defense. Has the church reacted at all to today's sentence? Well, it's noteworthy. Uh, CNN did reach back out to the Church of Scientology to see if they had a statement. And Masterson was originally uh, convicted on May 31st. And so they sent us the same statement that they put out at that time, which says, in part, that there is not a scintilla of evidence supporting the scandalous allegations that the church harassed the accusers. Every single instance of supposed harassment by the church is false and has been debunked. Jake. All right, Stephanie Elam, thank you so much. As if the American electorate is not divided enough, now artificial intelligence is being used to mimic U.S. voters to spread disinformation by a foreign country. Which one? We'll tell you which one is allegedly behind it next. Our tech lead, thousands of Americans logged onto social media and saw images such as this one. Look at that. A menacing Statue of Liberty with a machine gun. And if you look closely, Lady Liberty has sprouted a couple extra fingers on the left. Or this image, an evocative image of Black Lives Matter protests unwittingly reshared by a real American voter. The problem with these images, they're fake They were generated by artificial intelligence. Now, tech giant Microsoft says Chinese operatives are likely behind the images, looking to spark flames of divisive political debate among Americans as the 2024 election nears. Let's bring in CNN's Donio Sullivan and Sean Lengas. Sean, did Microsoft provide proof that these images are coming directly from the orders of the Chinese government? Jake, uh, the short answer is no. There's no smoking gun in which uh, the Chinese government has seen ordering these accounts to post these images. However, um, Microsoft did tie them to previous uh, Chinese networks that um, they described as affiliated with the uh, CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and did provide some evidence that there's, there's overlap there. And the, the same group was indicted by the, the U.S. Justice Department for allegedly uh, pushing out propaganda on behalf of the Chinese government. So there's, there's some linkages. And it's also, Jake, part of a broader pattern that U.S. officials and, and private researchers are seeing in which uh, Chinese operatives are embracing these sort of Russian-style tactics in terms of sowing division, uh, weighing in on, on hot-button political issues that they previously hadn't uh, in, in recent years. So it's definitely a concern ahead of the 2024 election. Yeah, although, Donny, I have to note, I mean, America hardly needs help <laughs> with political <laughs> divisions. I mean, we don't, we don't need the Chinese to be doing this. We're doing it to ourselves enough. I, 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 are these images mostly to sow anger among Republicans or Democrats or, or both? I mean, what's the purpose? 
Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to, to speak to intent here, Jake, but it's kind of like they're testing that, you know, they're kind of putting in some groundwork here to, to see uh, it might be a preview of, of what is to come. Um, look, as Sean mentioned there, this is quite a change we've seen and U.S. intelligence have seen in recent months over the past 12 months or so uh, in Chinese, generally Chinese uh, influence tactics uh, online that we see. Previously, you know, they've been very, very uh, focused on issues that directly relate to China. So oftentimes pushing out pro-Chinese propaganda. Uh, but what we've seen over these past 12 months, and we reported exclusively uh, last month, is that groups that allegedly are tied to the Chinese government or to other entities within China have been trying to organize even on the ground protests uh, in the United States, all uh, apparently uh, with that uh, intent to sow uh, division. Um, and you see those AI images there. I mean, one thing, you know, we all know from, from using social media is that images and videos can be far more compelling than, than pieces of text. And what AI is going to allow, um, you know, peddlers of myths and disinformation to do is to be able to to uh, create these kind of eye-catching images uh, in mass uh, in a way um, that could, you know, really flood our social media feeds. And Sean, it, this does sound a lot like they're just reading Russia's playbook. Right. Uh, if you talk to senior U.S. officials and, and election officials like I do, this is something that they've been warning about for months, if not years. And uh, it's not particularly ingenious or anything like that. As you mentioned, we kind of do it to ourselves domestically. But the willingness to, to not necessarily, as Doni said, promote Chinese interests, but just stir the pot uh, among the U.S. electorate is really growing. And, and we're going to keep our eyes on that in 2024. And Doni, Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook, Meta took down thousands of accounts that they thought were part of this biggest Chinese influence campaign just last week. One Meta executive called it, quote, the biggest single takedown of a single network we've ever conducted, which, I mean, that's something. Uh, what does this reveal about the broader efforts of the Chinese government to influence the world. I got to say, it's so, so vast, Jake. Um, you know, those thousands of accounts that Meta took down last week, not just on Meta, we're seeing this across every platform imaginable where we are seeing these posts, a lot of them attacking actually Chinese dissidents who are here in the United States, posting them on every blog post, uh, creating original illustrations that are attacking these people in very homophobic, often racist uh, ways, really all to degrade uh, folks. So really, really, really vast uh, campaign. All right, CNN's Sean Lingus and Donio Sullivan, thanks to both of you. The big story this evening, the court's coming down on former Trump advisor Peter Navarro, finding him guilty uh, of defying a subpoena from the now disbanded House Committee investigating the January 6th attack. Wolf Blitzer is going to have reaction from a former member of that committee when he picks up our coverage next in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 